0: So we're in Acts chapter 13. We left off last week with Paul and Barnabas in the synagogue in Pisidian Antioch. There's the map of Paul's first missionary journey. They left Syrian Antioch, the first sort of missionary Gentile-based church. They went down to Barnabas's home region, the island of Cyprus. If you follow that arrow down from the right of your screen, down toward the center of the screen, that's Cyprus, and then back up to the left, landing in what is modern-day Turkey, heading upward in elevation up into a mountainous region, coming to Pisidian, Antioch, and that whole region is the region of Galatia. So modern-day Turkey, ancient region of Galatia, also really referred to as Asia Minor back in the ancient times, but that lower part there being Galatia. So that's where we left off. They had been sent out t- together from Antioch in Syria on this missionary journey, taking the word out. they come into the synagogue. Paul had preached this very powerful sermon. And I will show you, if you'll look back with me, in chapter 13, verse 38. As with any good sermon, it comes to a very strong and clear conclusion as he's in this synagogue speaking to the Jewish people and to Gentiles who had an affinity for the God of the Jews, but had never become Jews because of the various rituals that would be involved. They liked to hear about the God of the Jews. They like to hear the messages, but they never actually took the step to convert and maybe always felt somewhat like second-class citizens. Like God was the God of the Jews. They were God's chosen people. These people were Gentiles. So the best they could ever do was to be come close to God, but never like the Jews had. They were never going to be chosen by God. In that way, they couldn't experience what the Jews had experienced. So that would be the groups that Paul was preaching to. And he says there in verse 38 of chapter 13, he says, therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through this man, meaning Jesus, is preached to you the forgiveness of sin. And by him, everyone who believes is justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. So basically he says to this whole group and it impacts them for different reasons in different ways, he tells them, look, the key to your forgiveness is not in your rituals and traditions. The key to your forgiveness is in Jesus Christ. And by Jesus Christ, all of the moral things you've done wrong, all the ways you've failed to keep God's law, all the ways you've failed to do what's right in God's eyes, all the things you're ashamed about, all the things you're guilty of, all of that, is wiped away because you fast. No, that's not what he said. All that is washed away because you've gone through this ritual or done that thing or attended Sunday school. None of that, he says. It's all washed away, forgiven, cleansed, no longer an object of God's wrath, no longer under punishment, now made righteous, given this clear standing with God. How? How does that happen? By faith in Jesus Christ. For the Jew and the Gentile. And that's what Paul ends with. And now there's a response. With any good sermon, a good sermon should move people to make a response. I think uh, in Ecclesiastes, Solomon says that the the words of the wise are like goads. Maybe you don't know what a goad is, but if you have, uh, in that day, if you were into agriculture and you used oxen to plow your fields, when your oxen didn't want to go where you wanted them to go, you had a long pointed stick and you kind of poke them with the stick a little bit, and that would make the ox woo, you know, kind of get him going a little bit. And he'd get him going. So, so the sermons are meant to kind of poke. If you walk out and say, man, you really stepped on my toes today. Well, that's what I'm supposed to do. I'm supposed to poke you with the word of God to make you move or to challenge you to move in a direction. So that's what Paul does. Now there's the response, verse 42 through 52. We see the response to Paul's sermon. So when the Jews went out of the synagogue, the Gentiles begged that these words might be preached to them the next Sabbath. Now, when the congregation had broken up, many of the Jews and devout proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who, speaking to them, persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. So catch the scene. They're in the synagogue. Paul preaches. He's preached this message about how to be right with God through Jesus Christ, and then Service ends, they sing a closing song and everybody leaves. The Jews going out to lunch and they're at El Vaquero going, what'd you think of today's sermon, you know, after synagogue? What'd you think of what Paul said? And they're analyzing it, debating about it, discussing it. But the Gentiles, they came right up front before they left. They came right down and thought, I got to talk to this guy. What he just said blew our minds. And they begged him, they begged him. This is every preacher's dream. How many of you know that we stay up late at night thinking about people begging to hear about God's word. I mean, awesome. So these Gentiles, you'd think it would be the Jews going, whoa, we never read our scriptures like that. We never saw that from Isaiah. We never saw that in the Psalms. And now you've made it clear to us, what must we do to be saved? You know, you'd love to hear that. But it was the Gentiles that begged that Paul would preach to them again next week. If we come back, would you preach again? Now, he wasn't particularly funny. He doesn't tell any jokes, but he gave them the word of God. And they locked onto it. Why? Because what he said was you as Gentiles can be accepted by God and forgiven by God and made righteous by God just as you are. You don't have to become a Jew and you're not going to be a second-class citizen. You will be accepted right on the same level as anybody else. There's a level playing field in the eyes of God. And this was radical to them. This gave them hope. This gave them joy. And so they say, hey, can you come preach that again? So they follow him. They say, hey, Paul, let's you and Barnabas and me, we'll go, we'll go out to lunch too. And we'll sit at lunch and we'll just talk more about these things because these are eternal things. These are important things. So these are the things we should be talking about. So they broke up with the Jews and, and the devout proselytes, those that had been converts, they followed them and they continued to talk and look at what Paul had to persuade them. The end of that verse, the end of verse 43 says, Paul persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. So he's explaining to them God's grace, that it's salvation, righteousness. These are not things you earn. They're not things you can earn. These are things that are given to you by God. Everything I do in my life, from studying the Bible, to praying, to fasting, to coming to church, to being part of the body, to going on the mission, to the, none of that has anything to do with trying to make myself lovable to God. God cannot, it's not possible for God to love me any more than he did the day I got saved when I knew nothing and did nothing. When Jesus Christ hung on the cross for me, he hung there for the sinful me because he loved me right where I was. And everything I do now in my life and hopefully everything you do now in your life is just out of gratitude for what we've been given. I can't make God love me any more than he already does. We try to beautify ourselves. Don't we We try to show God, well, here's what I'm doing for you, God. Here's what I'm doing for you, God. Oh, look what I do for you, God. I go through this ritual. I participate in this tradition. Shouldn't you love me more, God? God says, Steve, you're missing it. I've already loved you. While you were yet a sinner, Christ died for you. How can he love you any more than that? And they're hearing this. And now Paul has to say, now there's gonna be a challenge because not everybody believes that what I'm telling you is true. Because we live and I'll just use us for example, we live here in America. And America is the nation of rags to riches. And we're thankful for that, that people have opportunity here. But we have this mindset of, well, you got to pull yourself up by your bootstraps because we value hard work. And God values hard work, but not for your salvation. And so we value these things and we apply them to our spiritual life. So what we apply to our physical life, well, you know, people need to make their own way, do their own thing, pull themselves up by their bootstraps, accomplish it because we get out of something what we put in and we earn our way. We should get what we deserve. You work hard, you should make it, you should accomplish it. And that's the mindset we have. So when it comes to salvation, the idea of grace, I find the American church continues to struggle with grace. Even then we tell people, hey, you're saved by grace. They come into church and then we give them all the rules they have to follow now that they've been saved by grace. Have you familiar with that? You ever been to a church like that? Well, you're saved by grace, but you need to wear a tie. We're saved by grace, but you need to do this. We're saved by grace, but you need to you need to look just like us. You need to dress like us. You need to think like us. You need to talk like us. You need to carry the Bible that we carry. You need to do all these things, and we put them right back under the law, and we wonder why people don't want to come to church today. And he tells them, "You got to continue in this because everything." culturally for them, the Jews in the era, they're gonna say, well, you know, we got questions about what Paul said. Watch what happens. Look at Galatians chapter one for a minute. Now remember, what was the name of the region I said Paul was preaching in? Galatia. So when Paul writes the letter to the Galatians, he's writing to the very people we're talking about that are getting saved or not getting saved right now in Acts 13. So he has to write this letter sometime in the future that says to them, verse six, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him. From who? From Jesus. What happened? He said, hey, you guys got to continue in the grace. Did they? They didn't. They were influenced by these people that said, Paul was wrong. Grace is not enough. You have to have grace and this and that and the other thing. So he says, I marvel how soon you're turning away. Look over at chapter three, verse two. Well, let's just look at verse one. He says, "O oh, foolish Galatians. That stings a little bit. Who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified. This only I wanna learn from you. And it's a good question for us. Good question for you. Did you receive the spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? When you got saved, how much did you know about God? I don't know what your salvation story is. Many of you know my salvation story. I got saved in a parking lot. No band, no invitation, no worship team, no preaching. Just a deep sense of my own sinfulness and loneliness and that I had been on the wrong road from God. I was walking away from God. So I can speak for myself and I would say many of you can probably say a similar thing that, yeah, you maybe you were going to church at the time but really, when you got saved, when the Spirit of God came over you, did God say, hmm, I'm going to save you because I see all that you're doing here. Therefore, I'm going to give you salvation. This group certainly couldn't say that, right? These Gentiles, did they have anything to offer to God to say, here's what we were doing, and that's why we got saved. That's why God blessed us. No, they didn't have anything to say. So they, He can say to them, you guys know it. You know that when you got saved, it was the Spirit of God in your life. It wasn't all of your works. You know that. You remember that. So they had a, a, a true thing to look back on. Look what he says next. He says, are you so foolish having begun in the spirit? Are you now being made perfect by the flesh? Paul said to them, hey, guys, I exhort you. Continue in the grace of God. And now he's got to say to them, remember, you began. It's one thing to begin in the grace of God. But then somewhere along the line, we become a Christian and we live that way for about 20 years. We get pretty good at it. We learn all the vocabulary. We know what Bible's better than what other Bible. And now all of a sudden we move from being that tax collector who was in the temple just banging his chest saying, God, be merciful to me. That's where we started out. You were a mess. You were a loser. You were you're dysfunctional and you came to church because your neighbor invited you, your girlfriend invited you, your brother, whatever, somebody invited you and said, you're a mess, you need the Lord. So you come in here, you get saved, God cleans you up, 20 years go by and you forget what you used to be. And now you start to think that somehow you've had something to do with your success in life. And then you start to look at others as if, well, who, who do they think they are coming into this? why don't they know how to dress and and why don't they know how to do what's right why don't they know these things and you forget that just like you began and continue in the grace of god so do they we were talking uh, the other day michael uh, produces our radio program and you know we've go back into the archives to look at old sermons that were preached and recorded and he was telling me steve you're giving me a hard time editing the radio programs because you guys know sometimes I stutter over my words and I'm not the most eloquent and sometimes I start sentences and I don't finish them and so Michael's trying to make this all work for the radio so that people aren't like you know hitting themselves over the head while they're driving trying to figure out what I'm saying so he's trying to edit this he goes damn man Steve this is rough and I said I know all the more miraculous that people still come to Calvary Chapel. <laughs> only by the grace of God. Because what am I going to say? Well, people come here because I am such a great preacher. You know, and it's like, I can't even, I stutter, I do this and that. And Michael's going, oh, how am I going to edit this to make it work for radio? And it was a 40 minute sermon. I got 10 minutes, you know, because the rest of it was um and uh and duh and whatever. It's the grace of God. Any time in your life, you forget that. You start to be in trouble. And when this church, and that's why I want to say to this church, we have got to continue in the grace of God. Anything and everything we have individually, anything and everything we have as a church is by the gift of God. Look, I know the other guys that are elders here. We sit in meetings together. What's happening at Calvary Chapel, Flavanna isn't because of us. I can assure you that. And if you don't believe us, you can ask our wives. They'll be glad to tell you. So he says to them, back to Acts chapter 13, You guys have to continue. It was the grace of God that got us started, and it's the grace of God that brings us home. Amen, church? Amen. Back to Acts chapter 13. This is what he encourages them to do. So on the next Sabbath, a week has passed. Almost the whole city came together to hear the word of God. So those that had heard it went out and said to their friends, their golf partners, their the people at the gym, their neighbors, their relatives said, man, we were at the synagogue last Saturday, which is the Sabbath, is Saturday, and this guy was a visiting rabbi, and he preached stuff we'd never heard before. And not just that it was new, but it spoke to our hearts about us being accepted by God, about us being made righteous. Well, we know we could be made righteous because we just got to become like Jews. He says, no, 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 no. He said, we could become righteous with God, We can become right in the eyes of God without becoming a Jew. And he said, oh, now you got my attention. What are you talking about? What do you mean? He said, yeah, through Jesus, we can have our sins forgiven and be right there with the Jews. We don't have to become Jews. Show me the guy that's teaching this. I got to hear it for myself. Awesome. So, so much it spreads that the people that are talked to actually are moved to go to church that next week. I mean, that's how it should be. People ask, well, how do... You know, you guys are so far back down the road. Like, how do people even know your church is there? It's because it's cool. People I talk to all the time. They go, we drove down that long driveway and the speed bumps, and we thought about turning back, just you know, we weren't sure. But we got there. Was oh, we saw this church, and we come in. And how's it happen? Word of mouth. People hear God's word, and they say, "You got to come to this church." You know, the pastor's kind of weird, but the word of God is preached there. The word of God. And that's what they did. So much so the whole city comes out to hear the word of God. The parking lot is packed. People can't find a spot. There's no seats left. Everybody's packed in to hear the word of God. Not to hear the funny pastor or the dynamic preaching. They're here to hear the word of God. Verse 45, but when the Jews saw the multitudes, so the Jews see how many people have come to hear Paul preach that message. It should say they were so excited that people were coming to hear God's word. Shouldn't that be what it says? They were pumped that the whole city came to their synagogue to hear the Bible taught. But is that what it says? not that disappointing? Look what it says. It says instead of that, they were filled with envy. Literally the word is zeal or zealous or rivalry or contentious rivalry. So they saw all the people coming to hear Paul and they got jealous. And they started to speak against Paul. They started to try to win the crowd over to their side. So the next part of that says, but when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy and contradicting and blaspheming. They opposed the things spoken by Paul. They were opposing, not Paul. They were opposing who? God. Because God's word was what was being taught. And I find that this is not an uncommon thing. If you've grown up a certain way and they had grown up a certain way, believing in the traditions of their religion, and now they're hearing something different from the word of God, and it's challenging them. And I know people that have come out of cultic backgrounds and people that have come out of other traditional denominational backgrounds, and then they come here and we're preaching through Acts and they're hearing us teach on being baptized with the Holy Spirit. And they go, wow, my, we don't talk about that. Now, here's why I don't believe that's true or whatever. Hey, you got the arguments with God, not with me or any other. You might hear some different doctrine. And that's why we go through. Here you go. You read it yourself. So do you know that it's not me preaching it? This is God's word. You have to deal with that. And they were having a hard time. So they opposed what Paul said. They blasphemed him, meaning they spoke evil about him. Cursed Adam, put him down, He doesn't really know what he's talking about. He's not really a legit rabbi. A thousand things they would say to try to get people opposing to him. Do You think that rattled Paul? We've been listening to the Apostle Paul now for a few weeks and this is a tough guy. This is a zealous guy. Do you think he got rattled by that? Think he went home crying? I was trying to share God's word and they were all mean to me. I'm never doing that again. Let's find out. Verse 46 says, then Paul and Barnabas... Grew bold. They didn't go, well, we have a right to preach here. They didn't get sad. They didn't get upset. They grew bold. And I hope that's what opposition does in your life. I know me. The minute someone tells me what I can't do, man, don't tell me that. That makes me want to do it. (laughs) You know, I was told, some of you guys know the story and I won't belabor it, but when I first started teaching Bible studies, I was told that I could do it, but it would never succeed. But when someone says, you can't, you, you don't have a degree. You can't do that. Okay, I'm glad the Lord doesn't know that. Glad he's not bothered by that. So he grew bold and said, it was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you, speaking to the Jews, to you first, but since you reject it and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, behold, we turn to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, I have set you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be for salvation to the ends of the earth. So because of jealousy, They begin to oppose the things God says to them. And instead of being excited about what God was doing at the church down the road, or instead of being excited about what God was doing in their synagogue, drawing people to himself, they were jealous, they were envious, and they were opposing it. And Paul says to them, hey, we had to speak to you first. You guys are the ones with the rich tradition, with the rich heritage in God. You know, the fathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the prophets, Ezekiel and Daniel and all that stuff is part of your history. So when we come to you first, you got the priority because you have the background. You should have been the first ones to accept it because it's the culmination of all you've been reading about in your Old Testament. But he says, since you reject it, they've rejected it. The word interestingly means to shove off or to shove away. They shoved away the word of God. Now, when I was in middle school, my first dating opportunity was in about seventh grade. And I had gotten a note from someone who'd gotten a note from someone who'd gotten a note from someone who'd gotten a note that a girl named Rosemary wanted to go out with me. And this is my first introduction to dating. So uh, I didn't know what to do. So I said, okay. Didn't really know what that meant. Uh, where are we going to go? Go out. What's that mean? Uh, so I wrote a note and gave it to the person who gave me the note, gave the note and gave the note and gave the note and gave the note to Rosemary that said, okay, this is before texting. The younger folks in here go, no, why would you pass note when you could have texted? I lived in a generation before texting. I know I'm that old. So we were all of a sudden, we're supposedly going out. Problem was I didn't like her. I didn't even really know her. I didn't have any desire to spend any time with her. And anytime she'd come near me, I'd run the other way. She'd come up the steps, I'd turn around and go down the steps. And so I really tried, I just wasn't interested in it. Needless to say, our relationship, our budding relationship just didn't really ever take off. There was neither love nor respect. So it didn't work out so well. My seventh grade, short-term romance. But I, I shoved her away, her advances. And I think that's a similar picture to what we see people doing with God. God is making advances to them, wanting to be in relationship with them. And what are they doing? They're shoving off his word, putting away his love note to you. Now, what do you naturally do if someone rejects your advancements of love? Well, you just got to advance harder. No, 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 that's not what you do. That's not what you do. You go to someone else that will accept your advancements of love. So that's what they do. They said, you guys don't want to hear what God has to say to you? Then we'll go where? We'll go to the Gentiles. Interestingly, we live in a time when John said it in 1 John 5, you accept the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. You accept the witness of men. You get up in the morning, the weatherman says, it's going to rain later today. So you go, oh, better grab my umbrella. You believed him. For generations, We believe the self-esteem movements. How many of you know what I'm talking about if I say self-esteem movement? That kids, the problem with kids these days is they don't have enough self-esteem. So now they all get trophies and everybody wins and we don't keep score. And guess what? Enough time has gone by that now people are starting to reassess the self-esteem movement. Can I tell you what they're finding or do you already know? You probably already know. This is from Psychology Today magazine, The self-esteem movement has done an entire generation a deep disservice. It started with the best intentions. 1969, Nathaniel Brandon wrote a paper entitled The Psychology of Self-Esteem. That suggested that feelings of self-esteem were the key to success in life. Hearing this, many people started to find ways to confer confidence upon our children. This results in competitions where everyone gets a trophy and no one actually wins. What they're saying now is, Boy, did we get that wrong. You see, the experts say, if you do this, this is what's right. If you eat that, if you believe this, if you try that, Oprah's saying it, Dr. Phil's saying it. Well, how readily do we receive what they say? Oh, Oprah's, well, if Oprah said it, I mean, come on. Or, well, the psychologists are saying self-esteem is what we need. So everybody runs that direction. We receive the witness of man, but we open the Bible and we go, How do we know we can trust God? Well, you trusted that guy. You trusted that person. And then you say, how can I trust? This is God we're talking about. If you're going to receive the witness of man, why not what God says to you? And instead, they rejected it. And look what it caused. He says to them, since you reject it, we're going to turn to the Gentiles. But know this, by rejecting it, you judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life. Does this say God is punishing them? Does it say God is sending them to hell? It's the judicial word that means in a court, you have pronounced judgment on who? Yourself. By rejecting God's offer of salvation, by rejecting God's offer of righteousness. I mean, there you are in God's court, just like being down in the Palmyra courthouse. And there you are, the judge pronounces the sentence, condemned, we're guilty. We talked about that last week. But because the judge also loves you, He has made a special thing in his courtroom called substitution. And he says, I'll tell you what, in our courtroom, you can have a substitute. Someone can exchange his life for yours. So after your condemnation, after you're pronounced guilty, this substitute comes and he takes your place. He serves your sentence, you get his righteousness and that's how we solve the problem of justice and mercy in the court of God. And if you say, no, thank you. I'd like to do my time. I'd like to serve my sentence. I'd like to take my own death penalty. Then the judge would plead with you, "What are you talking about? Why would you do that?" And you continue to resist and reject. If the doctors have a cure for a disease that you have and you reject the cure, well you say, "Well, those doctors, they just don't know what they're doing. Those doctors let me down. Would it be their fault? If you end up dying from this illness, by the way, a number of years ago, read a story about a couple Jehovah's Witnesses uh, they were. And so they refused blood transfusion as part of their Jehovah's Witness doctrine. And their son got very sick and he was sick with an illness that I don't remember what it was, but a blood transfusion would have been necessary and saved his life. But because of their belief system, they rejected that. They gathered their church to pray day after day after day after day, laid hands on him, prayed over him, prayed for God's healing, and he died. And later on, they wrote a book about their experience and about how people said, well, he must not have had enough faith and all these kind of things. And what they said was, you know, we dealt with our son with great hope. I mean, boy, did we hope he would be saved. Boy, did we hope this would happen. He'd be okay. And we dealt with him with great faith. We really believed God would step in and heal and we really believed this would happen. They said, but what we didn't deal with him with was love. These three things, faith, hope, and love, the greatest of these is love. Love would have warranted them to give the transfusion that medically would have saved his life. And they rejected the cure and he died. And so to be honest with people, to be honest with you this morning, I don't consider myself a hellfire and brimstone pastor or preacher, but if you go to the cancer doctor and he looks at your things and he says, man, she's got cancer, but I can't tell him that. That wouldn't really be nice, but don't you want to know if you've got something going on, so you can get the cure that you need. So the Bible's diagnosis of you is that you've got a terminal disease called sin and unrighteousness. But the good news is there's a cure. And it's a hundred percent. It's a hundred percent cure. And here you go. And get <laughs> the best thing is a pharmaceutical company doesn't control it, so it won't cost you a bunch of money. It's free. It's free. Can I just say that again? It's free. And it's there for you. Please take the pill. I can put the pill in your mouth. I can make you bite down your lips. I can get it there. But I cannot make you swallow it. Only you can swallow it for yourself. So does God send people to hell? Because you've heard that. Why does a loving God send people to hell? How can a God who loves people send people to hell? How are you going to answer that now? Now that you know this verse, you're going to say, well, actually, people send themselves to hell by rejecting God's certain cure for their disease called sin. It says it right there. It doesn't say that God did it. It says, you judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life. And behold, we turn to the Gentiles. And he quotes Isaiah This was God's plan all along for them to go to the Gentiles, for the Gentiles to receive the message of salvation. So verse 48, now when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord. So what a different response. I mean, couldn't be two more radically different responses. They heard it and they were pumped. You mean we don't have to get circumcised? Yeah, woohoo! you know, that's great news. I can be saved just as I am, yep. You mean, I don't have to go through all the rituals that the church tells me I gotta go through? I don't have to do this, I don't have to do that. Nope, you can be saved right now, right here, right there by believing in Jesus Christ. That's what he says, and that's why they're so pumped. Now, notice real quickly, they were glad and glorified Paul. Is that what it says? It says they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord. You see, what Paul brought to them was not some new philosophical idea or some interesting self-help teaching. What he brought to them was the word of God. They knew it. They saw it from the scriptures. And therefore, Paul can't get the glory. It's God that gets the glory. It's his message. It's his way of salvation. It's all from him. So they heard, they were glad. And the next part of that verse says, and as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. Man, nobody who was meant to be saved got missed out on it. Everybody who should be saved was saved. And you're going, Steve, that's a little bit of a strange verse. Wait, uh, shouldn't it say as many as believed were appointed to eternal life? Wouldn't that be a little different? It doesn't say that though. It says as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. So some of you come from Well, let me just say this. This is a very diverse congregation. First service as well. You guys, very diverse congregation, spiritually speaking. Some of you in here have been saved 50 years. Others been saved 50 days. Some of you may be getting saved today. Come from Baptist backgrounds. Come from cultic backgrounds. Come from atheist backgrounds. Come from Presbyterian backgrounds. Come from Calvary Chapel background, all over the board. And so my goal here as we talk about this, because some of you came in, you know this verse, and you're a Calvinist, and most people don't even know what that is, and you know that this is one of the flagship verses for Calvinists. And if you don't know what a Calvinist is, don't worry about it. You don't need to know. Not important. Calvin was a human being, just like you and I, who had some very interesting thoughts about God's word. We'll get to that in a minute. So you're reading this, and I'm going to keep this very, very simple, and we're going to stick to the Word of God. How about that for an idea, huh? Let's see what the Word of God tells us. As many had been appointed. The word appointed is not the standard word used for the doctrine of election. The doctrine of election is a, is a church doctrine, is a biblical doctrine that says God chooses people. God chooses people. And that's great news, because I don't know if there's some people that are saved that I'm not sure I would have chosen them. But, but God chooses people. So let's just leave it at that. It's called the doctrine of election. The Greek word is eclecto. That's not this word. This word appointed is a different word. It's the word tasso in Greek. It's a military word that means to set in order, to order things, to arrange them. One of the challenges was that this word can either be reflexive or it can be passive. Passive means that I'm looking at Eddie and I say, I hit Eddie with my Bible. Boom. And I hit him. What did he do? He just sat there and got hit. He didn't contribute to it at all. But now Eddie could pick up his Bible and start hitting himself. That's reflexive. That's called the middle voice. He, Eddie could pick up his Bible and go boom, 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 start hitting himself. So the question in this, that word can be either one. So as I read the commentaries on this, those that came from a certain way of thinking translated a certain way. Those that came from the other way, translate the other way. So, You know, I'm not sure I got any help on that looking it up the way I did because you can make it say either one. So the question is, do we believe, do I believe, can this be talking about the doctrine of what we call unconditional election, meaning that God chose me to be saved? And the answer is, do we believe that? Do we teach that? Absolutely. Absolutely, we teach that. Not from here necessarily, could be but not necessarily. I can teach that to you from 1 Peter chapter one. In 1 Peter chapter one, Peter writes to the church and he says that they were elect according to the foreknowledge of God. They were elect according to the foreknowledge of God. Now that's good news that God has foreknowledge, means he knows things ahead of time. Doesn't the Bible say that one of the characteristics of God is that he knows the end from the beginning? So there's nothing that surprises him There's nothing new to him. He is not surprised that Donald Trump is our president. But think about if we had foreknowledge when it came time for the election. Think about if we knew ahead of time what was gonna happen in the future, what the end would be. Wouldn't that influence maybe how we voted if you knew what was gonna happen? So you see, when God elects, it's based on his foreknowledge, what he knows ahead of time. It's the Greek word prognosis. You go to the doctor, doctor says, you got this going on, and here's the prognosis. You're gonna be in bed about two weeks, but then you ought to feel better. Sometimes the doctor gets it right. Sometimes the doctor gets it wrong, but the same word is used to know ahead. Progno- knowledge that's ahead of time. I could also teach you the doctrine of election from Ephesians chapter one that says, just as he chose us in him, Jesus, before the foundation of the world. So that speaks of God choosing us when, after he watched us for a while to see how we would behave. After he watched our, our lives and then decided if we were good enough to choose. You see, when I was growing up, back to the playground, playing kickball, you had everybody lined up. Okay. Who wants to play kickball? We're getting a game going. Everybody meet by the backstop. You know, everybody lines up and there's big kids and little kids and, you know, goofy kids and misfit kids and tough kids and strong kids and athletic kids. And they're all lined up. The two captains are there. And what do they start to do? They start to choose. And what are they choosing based on? How good and how far you can kick that ball. So all the tough athletic kids with a big foot, the great big six foot five kid, you know, who's just growing way ahead of his time. He gets picked first because he can bash that ball a mile and slowly it piddles down to me. And you, right? We're there at the end and you know, I'm in a debate club or I'm a math lead or whatever. And I'm not real athletic, but so we're used to choosing being based on performance, but God's election is not based on performance. It's based on his love. So the doctrine of election highlights the grace of God because when God chose you, oh man, The greatest thing in my life is that my wife chose me. I still can't believe that my wife chose me. Like, what a blessing. Despite who I was, despite, and and I was not, you know, I was not walking close with the Lord when we met. I was a mess. You guys wouldn't believe it if I told you what Pastor Steve used to be like. That's why I keep anybody I I contact from college to contact me, I tell them I do not live in Fluvanna County, don't ever come here. There's a bunch of people that cannot know but she chose me, she put her love on me. And when God chose you, it was before the foundation of the world, before you did anything good or bad, who chose you? And you say, but wait a second, Steve, then that's not fair. Then God is choosing people, he's choosing who he wants, and that means maybe he's not choosing others. So do you still believe in man's free will? I mean, can people still have the choice to get saved? or is God? Are we just puppets and God's chosen it from the beginning? Well, look at the next part of that verse as many as had been appointed to eternal life, what'd they do? They believed. Do you think God took over their mouth and grabbed their jaws and said, made them say, I believe? That was their choice. They chose to believe. So wait a second, Steve. Are you saying you believe in unconditional election? Yeah. And are you saying you believe in the free will of man to choose? Absolutely. Otherwise, Paul couldn't preach whosoever calls to the name of the Lord. Shall be saved. Otherwise, Paul couldn't preach in Romans chapter 10 that how will they believe if they don't hear and how will they hear if no one is sent? Because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And so even though maybe they were elect, you were elect, I was elect, always preached to the church, we're the elect. He does it how? Through the preaching of the word of God and the response of people to the preaching of the word of God. Do you see that here in this passage? So we find that as we walk into the gates of salvation, we see the heading over the front of the gate, the front of the doorway that says, whosoever wills may come. And so you say, I wanna come, I wanna be saved. And you walk through the door, as you walk into the garden, you look back at the gate and there's a sign over the backside of the gate that says, elect before the foundation of the world. So Steve, how do you reconcile those two things? How do you work those two things out? I don't, I don't have to. I can believe in them both because they're both in the word of God. So don't define yourself by this or that. You know, Calvin taught a lot of things before you call yourself a Calvinist. Those labels can tend to divide and tend to push people apart. You're a Christian. Be okay with that. I'm a Christian that believes the truths that are in the word of God. Can we be okay with that church? Amen. Do you see it there in that passage? Fantastic. As many as had been appointed to eternal life believe. That means you can't take credit for nothing, which builds us again back to the grace of God. If I got saved, it was because of God's grace. But here's the thing. If you're worried about it, if you say, well, I don't know, am I elect? Am I not elect? Then today you can believe. And if you choose to believe, guess what? You were elect. You chose to believe because God chose you. So if you're worried about it, then today after we close the service, and I give an invitation, then believe, and you'll know that you were chosen by God. Amen? Amen. Verse 49, and the word of the Lord was being spread throughout all the region. Man, when you're preaching grace, it spreads. People are tired of religion. But the Jews stirred up the devout and prominent women, and the chief men of the city raised up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and expelled them from their region. So the Jews were so unhappy, they spurred or stirred up who? The devout and prominent women. You want to get something done in your community? Get the prominent women involved. The women of power, of influence, of wealth. So the Jews know right where to go to get the women involved. And then, of course, the chief men as well. And what'd they do? They expelled Paul. They kicked him out. They ran him out. Message was too radical. Message was too departing from what they held on to. Do you think that bummed Paul out? You think he went home again crying? You think he was discouraged by that and said, well, that's the last time I preach. Because you guys got to learn to handle rejection, right? I mean, we get so bent out of shape when we get, deal with rejection. Here's Paul. You don't want what we have? Fine. He says, they expelled him. But verse 51, they shook off the dust from their feet against them and came to Iconium. You can't kick me out because I leave, right? You know the story. I'm out of here. They shook off the dust from their feet, meaning anything to do with you guys. We are innocent of your blood. We've told you the truth. You've rejected it. We're moving on. But look at the response in the disciples. Verse 52, and the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. That's what grace does. So I want to encourage this church, a couple of things. Number one, let's continue in the grace of God. The hard part about that, you have to humble yourself to admit that there's nothing in your life outside of what God has done for you. Not your salvation, not your giftedness, not your smarts, not your whatever it is. It's a gift of God. Number two, if today you're not saved, then I wanna give you an opportunity. Today can be the day of salvation for you. Because we know that God so loved the whole world that he gave his only son. We know that God doesn't desire that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Today is the day, amen?